Welcome back to season nine of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your guest host, Latia Frazier, and along for the ride will be my ableist sidekick, Josiah Jones. He is the now for honest conversations about disability in the church. Enjoy the episode. Hey, y'all, welcome back to the podcast today. We have my friend, Aaron. Aaron, would you introduce yourself and tell us where you're from, where you're coming from? Yeah, yeah. So uh, my name is Aaron. I was born at some point. Um, now, I actually was born in Utah, and I grew up there um, for the first 28 years of my life. Then I moved up here to Oregon with my now wife and my kids that we have had up here. And figuring out life and what that looks like, because it is far different than me growing up in Utah. So, um Side note, that's where we met actually. Like, I know three, four, five, and then I lived, uh, I lived in Utah for a year. So, here y'all is proof that this New York City girl <laughs> moved to Utah first. All right. Um, <laughs> I, so this uh season is about disability and just wondering whether and in what ways you identify within the disability community? Um, well, I live with bipolar and generalized anxiety disorder, um, but actually I've really struggled to identify with the disability community because my because my stuff is really stabilized now and it's really invisible and it makes me feel sometimes like, well, I'm not really disabled, but then I have an episode and I'm totally like wiped out and I'm remembering that, no, this is, this is a disability. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I was going to chime in with the token ableism for a minute. Right. Uh, <laughs> that was, that was percolating in my mind. How is it a disability? Especially we, we've heard Latia talk with other guests. I've heard Latia talk with other guests about invisible disabilities, but it's probably easy for folks to see you and, and ask, wait, hold on. How are you disabled exactly? Yeah, so bipolar is a mental illness and it's episodic, uh, which means that it's not an all the time thing, but um, I have periods of extreme depression and periods of extreme mania. So like my emotional threshold is a lot bigger. Like I go to 11 on both sides um, and when I'm depressed, I do have like severe suicidal ideation. I do have severe lack of energy. I do have um, like I can't function. I've lost jobs because I have been depressed and haven't been able to go to work. Um, I've it, it shuts everything down. And then when I'm manic, it seems like that'd be fantastic because I have so much energy and I'm going so many places and thinking so many things and doing all the stuff, but it's really chaotic in the world around me and really destructive because when I come down, I have to deal with, oh, did I just spend all our money? Oh, did I just wreck that relationship because I was doing whatever? And it's a disability because it, it affects every part of my life. And I have to work to maintain stability. Yeah, it sounds it sounds incredibly debilitating in general. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, I went when I was, um, I spent years trying to find the right medication cocktail for me to be able to actually stay stable. Um, and during those years, it was hard because I'd be on some medicine that just would not work. I'd be on some that would exasperate it. Um, I'd be on some that would make me have a, a mixed episode where I'm manic with all this energy, but I have all these depressive thoughts, and that's a real dangerous combination. Um, so it's it's been a, it's been a lot of work to get to the point where I'm at now, where I'm stable for my family, where I I still have my ups and downs, but they're a lot more manageable. Um, and as long as I remember to, to take my pills, which is kind of like a prayer routine I do every day, like, dear Jesus, let these still work. I, um, 
I managed to stay stable. I managed to hold down a job. I managed to take care of my family and do all the stuff that quote unquote normal people get to do. If I could ask one more question, then I'll let Latia continue with the interview. Um, can you give me just the timeline? Like how long did it take you to try to figure out how to manage it? And how long have you been able to, as you said, quote unquote, be normal managing it? Um, I think that's how you said Whatever it. normal is. Yeah, right. Whatever like that's why, is, yeah. quote unquote. Yeah. Um, so I actually didn't get diagnosed until I was 28. Um, and that's a whole like church thing of like, I don't need to be diagnosed because I have Jesus. I don't need to go to therapy because I have Jesus and I've got the pastor I can talk to. And it's, it's a whole thing. Um, but when I was finally diagnosed, it probably took until I was about, see, I'm 43, probably took until about 10 years for me to get real stable. Um, and that's 10 years of going to psychotherapy, of figuring out what this means, figuring out the right medication combo, figuring out my own rhythms. Like, since it is episodic, it's also cyclical. Like during January, I know that I'm going to be super depressed. It's just, it's what it is. Uh, during springtime, I tend to get more manic and I tend to like have all a lot more energy and I have to really watch what I do with that energy. Um, so it's taken about 10 years of getting to know myself and getting to know the medications that I'm on and what they do. Um, of, of basically learning what it means to live with bipolar has been this whole journey. Yeah. Got it. Thank you. Thank you for letting me ask. Of course. So can you uh, tell me uh, if we can return to this point, like your struggle, I think struggle is the word you used about like identifying within the, the disability mm -hmm. community. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's hard because I wasn't raised with the idea that I have a disability. I was raised thinking that I was quote unquote normal. So I could help people with disabilities and the, that whole token, like be inspirational because I'm whole and I'm this. And so my mindset has, has to have completely changed. And I still, I still find my neural pathways going back to those old things of you're not disabled. And honestly, a lot of days I don't feel disabled. You know, I, I, I can function, I can hold down a job, I can do these things. I, I don't deal with suicidal ideation all the time anymore. Um, I can handle things that, that are hard news, like they don't necessarily send me into a downward spiral. I can do all of these things. And so I kind of treat myself as if I'm, as if I don't have bipolar but then it catches up with me. I run out of all my spoons. I run out of my forks and my knives. Yes. And and I am just and I'm and I'm floored. I'm out or I miss my meds for a day. Um, I did that last week. I, I miss my meds for I, I take them in morning and night. I miss some night meds for about two days. I was just low level depression, real bad. And I'm like, oh, is something happening? What's oh, I missed my meds. That's what it was. Um so unless an episode really comes on, it's really easy for me to not think of myself as disabled, which then isn't a natural thought of how I'm going to be part of the community. But when I take myself and when I take an honest assessment of myself, then I'm like, no, no, for real, I am disabled and I am part of this community. I'm gladly part of this community. What can I do for advocacy uh what can i do since i write about theology what can i do towards a disabled theology for helping people understand this and wrestling through some of these questions that we have to ask yeah that's good you brought up something so i wanted to like pull it out because i know it they yeah. but i want to make sure folks do so um, in, in the disability community, there are at least, there are more, but at least three main kind of worldviews folks function under. And with one is the medical model, which focuses on like the diagnosis, whatever it is. And like, that's where the issue is. Like, 
I am the problem because I have cerebral palsy and then these things need to be mediated to right. bring me to a sense of normal, whatever that is. So right. like, that's why I use crutches and things like that. So that it mm -hmm. makes me walk and do those things that are considered normal in society. The other is the social model of disability, which says, which doesn't deny that I have a diagnosis, but says like the things that actually disable me are the structures in society, right? So if everywhere had elevators and ramps and like, people with disabilities didn't uh, experience discrimination based on it, like we wouldn't be as disabled as we are. The other though, is the limits model, which leaves room for both. Like uh, the, 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 the very real truth that systems are there that makes me more disabled, but we do have a diagnosis, whatever they are. And so like those things do limit me, right? And the sense of like, and you talked about spoons, right? So there's this spoon oh, yeah. theory that says you have whatever it is, everybody's different. These many spoons for the day, let's say five. And we have to decide where we're going to use our five spoons. And then once they're out, they're out. We all yeah. have, we're, we all have limits and the limits model of disability leaves room for like, sometimes we are experiencing our disability in a way that is more limiting than the other. So today I might have a lot more energy than I'll have tomorrow. So I can do our So right. just thinking about that, depending on, depending on the day you have, you could have more or less energy, uh, experience your disability in a way that's more or less kind of limited. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, all of that, I'm curious where you land uh, we met each other uh 2003 to like 2005 and i was yeah. definitely more into like charismatic evangelical spaces um when we were in utah but i'm wondering now where you land anywhere denominationally uh i am part of the episcopal church i was confirmed in the episcopal church this last um fall uh, which is the first time I've like officially joined a church ever. Um, I am pretty progressive, liberal. Um, although, if you ask me about the creeds, I'm pretty orthodox. So I'm kind of this weird combination. But I really like the Episcopal Church because it's a church that's bound by what we practice, not what we believe. So we practice this liturgy. We practice these uh, rituals. And they bind us together uh, as one people. So that's kind of where I land, which is funny because back in Utah when I was growing up, um, the Episcopals were liberals and liberals were all going to hell. So I am now my own heretic. So it, it kind of uh, kind of comes full circle for me. Or, or we just grow up, right? There's a... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's thinking about... Uh, our charismatic upbringings. I'm wondering how that might have shaped your idea of disability. And we talked about it a little bit before we uh, started to. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. so much. So much. Um, so there was the idea that I didn't need to do anything because nobody really pointed out these problems that I had. And as somebody that lives with mental illness, mental illness creates your point of view. And so you don't always realize it in yourself because you're like, this is just how life is. I get depressed sometimes. I have a lot of energy other times. Um, so I never really thought about it. And in church, they never really promoted counseling. So I never, you know. But then the other side of it, the theological side of it was that either emotions are bad or emotions are the tool of the Holy Spirit. So since I'm feeling this way, I must be because of a reason. And if I'm depressed, it's because of a sin because I'm separated from God. So that's why I'm depressed. Like the psalmist who 
sinned against God and God only. And I, well, I'm a worm. And then when I'm really full of energy and manic, I'm having this sort of mountaintop experience where I must be close to God. Maybe I can hang on to this. Maybe I can do this. So this teaching about what emotions are really affected me being able to look into maybe I do have a mental illness because the emotions were something not from my body, but from the supernatural world and something influenced by sin and glory and holiness and, and not, not just, it wasn't my body communicating with me. It was the Holy Spirit nudging me and leading me. So that, that kind of makes you think that you don't need therapy because it's all from God. And that's real dangerous because we need therapy. Let's just be honest. And medication. <laughs> and yes, yes, indeed. All, all of it. All, all of it. I think um, one of the things that disability theology has to offer is to say that God speaks to everyone and God has given people the ability and knowledge to come up with medicines and therapies and counseling and all the things uh, to promote wholeness um, in each of us. And not, and and it's not bad or good. It just is. Um, yeah. And it doesn't have any bearing on one's relationship with God or not. Uh, oh, totally, totally. And, and like the other side that's really helped me in disability theology is understanding that my illness. So I, I think, I think of the man born blind in the gospels who, who, you know, the disciples were like, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? And, and Jesus is like, neither stop thinking that way. <laughs> and like, like disability theology has really helped me separate the idea that somehow something was wrong with me. Something was wrong with me and God. And that's why this happened to me. If I could just be right with God, then I'd be whole. And disability theology has really, it's really helped me see myself as whole. Even like I view my disability as an illness. It's not part of me because my brain works not the way that it was designed to work. So I view I, I view that I have a lifelong illness, but that still doesn't mean that I'm not whole. I'm still a whole person living with this. I'm a whole person doing these things. Somebody that has, I mean, cerebral palsy, you're a whole person. You're not your illness. You're not separated from it. It's part of what you and who you are, and God views that as holy. Like that shift in thinking has been huge for me, just accepting all sorts of life events that have happened with me. Um, my wife is also, she lives with, um, and she's really open about this stuff, so I'm not stealing from her story, but she lives with OCD and PTSD uh, and angoraphobia, and she's not broken like you know she is whole and being able to take a theology that was so unhealthy and grow it into something that includes disabilities has been really healing for me i love it so two questions i think i have back to back one is and i think i know where you are based on what we've said um, within the disability community, there are folks that use either people first uh, language to, that emphasizes the person, like I'm a person that happens to have a disability because it's a part of who I am, but it isn't like all of who I am. Like it's just a characteristic of it. Or there are folks that uh, use identity first uh, language, which is to say like, I'm autistic, I'm deaf and like it's okay to use those words. It's part of my identity. It is intricately woven into who I am. So I wonder like where you land, somewhere in the middle, where was that? Um, for me it depends on what the disability is. 
my son is autistic. We use, uh, he is autistic, not he has autism. That is how we refer to my son because of what autism is. Myself, I live with bipolar mm -hmm. because what I have, I view as a chronic illness, not as, um, not, not as non-neurotypical which is how I view my son. His, his brain just works differently. My brain is sick. There's a difference. Um, I really try and take the lead from the person when I'm talking to whoever because I want to enter into their worldview and how they see themselves, and I want to respect that. So I guess I'm kind of in the middle, but it really depends on what the disability is and it depends on who I'm talking to that's actually going to um, identify however they identify. Before we started recording, Aaron, you had said you live just outside of Portland. So you and I probably have similar unpredictable weather patterns, especially right yeah. now in, in springtime. And this, I don't know, this is just another thing that came to mind. And since I'm trying to be, you know, the unfiltered ableist for the sake of education, I'm going to ask <laughs> another question. Uh, where I live and maybe where you live, the weather is described as bipolar on a regular basis. Um, and, yeah. and flippantly, flippantly as well. Uh, I'm just curious, someone who actually has um, bipolar disorder, how you feel about something like that? Well... I'm also a writer, so I get it. I understand what people are trying to do. But it's really detrimental to take an illness and treat it as something flippant and treat it as something that's like, oh, they're just being bipolar. Oh, the weather's just bipolar. Like, no, the weather is vacillating quickly between hail and sunshine. It's not having a depressive episode where there's a possibility of death by suicide. It's not having a manic episode where there's a possibility of, uh, of a psychotic break. Like what I live with is organic. It's not something outside of myself, even though it's, even though it's an illness I live with, it's not outside of myself. And the other side is like I mentioned a little bit, people will say, Oh, they're just being bipolar when somebody changes their mind or does something. Like all of that diminishes the seriousness of it. And all of that, all of that makes people that live with mental illness, specifically with bipolar, feel like they shouldn't be part of the disability community because it's so like easy to roll off the tongue and it's easy to sort of dismiss it. And it's like, well, you just have bipolar. Oh, I had that last year. I had somebody say that to me one time. Oh, dear. And I was, and I was like, are you. Are you serious? You you had this and you got over it, like oh, those essential oils, like like what you, what's your trick, like oh, like, be teach me like, that way, guru. Would it would that be would that be akin to me stubbing my toe and having a hard time walking that day and say, oh, I had cerebral palsy last week, Latia. I get it. Would yeah, that be akin to that? Seriously. Yeah, I like, might um have some words for you, just like. <laughs> yeah. I, this is all hypothetical. I have obviously never done that. But again, like might, that's I when might, I might speak in tongues. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, well, I asked because you brought that up. Like you, you said something earlier, and when you were talking to Latia about the flippancy of that. But then I just, you know, when we were talking more identity first, it was really bringing it to the surface. So again, thank you, thank you for letting me interject. I'm sorry, Latia. Please don't yell at me. I'll let you continue. No, I'm good. You're fine. <laughs> Um, so then this kind of leads uh, into the question that I've asked all of our guests at this point. So if there, I mean, you already take medicine, but if there was a pill that was created or somebody said, can I pray for you? And you sort of had this feeling that if they did that or you took that pill, you would no longer live with bipolar anymore. Would you do it? I don't know. Um, there's also a really fascinating study that done by Kay Mayfield from years ago. It's a book called Touched by Fire. And it talks about the, at that time, bipolar was referred to more as manic depressive. So it talks about the manic depressive um, temperament and 
artistic temperament and how the two kind of relate sometimes. I am not one to promote the idea of going off my meds to be more creative. That is not what I am saying or suggesting. What I am saying is I don't know because living with bipolar, learning to navigate it has helped me in my own creative process become more disciplined and not rely on inspiration as much. Um, and it's also helped me It's helped me be a compassionate person because I understand that I don't know what's going on invisibly in somebody else. Like, before I was bipolar, diagnosed, I should say, before I was diagnosed bipolar, because there was no before, um, it was easy to look at someone in a wheelchair, someone on crutches, or someone who, <clears throat> who had an obvious disability and feel for them some sort of either sympathy or possibly compassion or whatever, but I couldn't relate. Now I relate to people that share my kind of illness in a way that I haven't before. And, and what I find is that we sort of flock together. Like I will, I'm really open about my disability. The first time I preached in my church, I was like, I'm bipolar. Hey. Um, and, and one of the congregants, came up to me afterwards it was like i was surprised you said that i am too everywhere i go i meet people that have some sort of mental illness some sort of thing they live with it helps me be compassionate towards them on a day-to-day -day basis whether or not i know they have a disability because i'm like i don't know what's going on with this person i wouldn't have that that thought concept i wouldn't have that idea that Maybe somebody is having a, a, a day of so fierce anxiety, they're fighting off a panic attack, and that's why they're crabby. Like, I wouldn't have that concept or that idea if I didn't live with my illness. If I didn't live with this, I wouldn't be as compassionate. I wouldn't be as creative. Again, not because of the illness, but because of what it's taught me. So what it has taught me makes it so that I don't know if I would take a magic pill because I don't know what else it has to teach me. <laughs> yeah, I think that's honest, some honest uh, feedback, right? Of like, I think a lot of folks with disabilities would, would have times in their life where they might have said yes, and then mm -hmm. they go, oh, but if I did, then all of these things what also may not be true. So, you know, uh, it's, yeah. On that note, because they may, because I've heard, I've heard, maybe I've seen you write about it. And maybe as we talk through the years, just typing through stuff. But, because um, I know at some part in your life, you were talking, not that you're still not, but talking a lot about uh, living with bipolar. And I'm wondering, because this happens. Uh, with me, but also with others with disabilities, that like you now become the person that always talks about yeah. whatever the disability is. Can you tell me how that like, yeah, what what feelings you have around that? So I used to be a real big mental health advocate, and I still am, but my advocacy has shifted. Um, I realized in my own writing that writing about living with bipolar and living with mental illness was good but it also made things stand apart from real life like i was pulling back the curtain and showing people a secret my advocacy has shifted because i don't want to show people a secret i want to show people normalcy so I, I, I write about it, but it's almost offhand in my writing now. I talk about it, but it's almost offhand. Like I just mentioned like, yeah, I live with bipolar. That's kind of, you know, why I'm having a rough day today. Sorry about that. I, I do those things because I want, I, I genuinely want mental illness to be normalized. 
not to be a secret that we then can share because we're so brave, not to be a secret we can share because, wow, that really helped me get insight into somebody else. But just a normal thing of like people live with mental illness. Sometimes people have depressive, uh, clinical depression for a certain amount of time and they develop out of it. It's situational. But a ton of people, I don't even remember what the statistic is because I haven't looked at it for a while, but the majority of people go through some sort of mental health crisis in their lifetime. And what if we just normalized it and just treated it like, like my shirt's green today, like I live with bipolar. Like, So I, I don't write about it specifically anymore. Not because I'm not an advocate, but because my advocacy has shifted so hard into treating it as if it's a normal thing. And I've done that with a lot of disability stuff. Just like, I want to treat it like it's just normal. Like, I don't want to treat it special. I don't want to treat it like somebody's being so brave. I don't want to treat it like somebody's got these challenges. Right? Like, all of these things. Like, like what would happen if we just treated disability as normal, because it is, it's part of life. It's part of people. It's what people go through. It's all of these complex things. So let's just treat it like the rest of a complex life. This also brings up the other side of that, of like, especially in the media. Um, and I think even with this past I mean, we've had so many in America, but these past uh, mass mass shootings that they that media often like tries to create this narrative that the person has a mental health disability or a mental illness, yeah. and that's why. I wonder, like, what your thoughts are about that, because you know I have some thoughts, but I have many angry thoughts about it because. I have angry thoughts about it because they're taking something that people live with and struggle with and overcome and do all of these normal things with, and they're turning it into a reason for violence. It's hard with bipolar because there is the truth of bipolar rage, like things can happen and trigger people with bipolar so they get really angry and really rage out on things. Sometimes that can be violence. Sometimes that can be yelling. Sometimes it can be emotional abuse. Like I'm not exempt from this. I have, I have experienced bipolar rage before, but that doesn't mean that my mental illness is some sort of time bomb ticking to create violence. And the the other side of it in the media is they 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 blanket statement mental illness, so everybody thinks it's a monolith. Like you either have mental illness or you don't. They don't think about the varying degrees. Some like like I have to take an antipsychotic because that's how it helps me deal with my mania. Other people have to take SSRIs, which are not quite as severe in the side effects um but because they live with something that is a different way of being managed some people are resistant to medication some people need to check their lithium levels so often some people need to deal with uh ways of coping with schizophrenia things like that like there's so many different ways of coping and of living with mental illness that to treat it as a singular thing does a disservice to those who live with it. And it, it stops normalizing it and it starts turning it into like this big bad wolf that's going to come and get you. So if you have a mental illness, you better watch out because you might be the next shooter. Oh my gosh. Like it's, it's, a, it's a cheap way to talk about a, a really serious issue. They're trying to find a scapegoat and they turn it into the mental health, they turn it into the mental health community as the scapegoat. It's your guys' fault. If you didn't exist, this wouldn't happen. 
which that makes me feel absolutely fantastic. Let me tell you. Yeah. And also statistically, and I'll I'll try and look this up before it, before we post it, but um like statistically people who live with mental illness uh are more likely to be victims of crime than to, to absolutely crime. So but, absolutely. But if if the media had anything to say about it, uh, you wouldn't know that. But Right. It's even commercialized media. Like the only show that I've ever seen, to be honest, the only show I've ever seen that depicts bipolar in some sort of normalcy was Silver Linings Playbook. And I know that's problematic. I know it's I know it's got its issues. But like the, the dude lived with bipolar and it was normalized. It wasn't some central part of the story that he had to overcome. It was just something that happened. Other than that, I can't think of anything that treats bipolar as normal or that treats mental illness as as normal. Like it's always some huge thing or it's always some big, bad, scary thing. And it's not for people. Like it's what we live with. It's our day to day. It's it's hard. Don't get me wrong. But it's also normal. Exactly. Uh, because I know you love to talk about theology, and that's one of your things I want us to make sure we get to that part as well. I'm wondering how your bipolar shapes your understanding of God and has impacted your theology. It's made me believe in a more complex human God. Um because I have to be in touch with my body to know my symptoms and to know like what is happening in myself. Um, it's made me think of Jesus in a lot more human terms. Like how was Jesus in touch with his body? Mm -hmm. How was Jesus? Um, how did Jesus not just act human, but live human? Um, it also has made me question a lot of things about the God that I grew up with because I don't believe God cursed me with bipolar. I believe I have it, but do I have it because there's sin in the world and if Jesus takes away the sin, he's going to take away my bipolar? Or like that doesn't make sense to me anymore because that's a really explicitive theology that is it's a it, it's a theology that exploits people because it turns them into just objects that god gets to mold and move around instead of treating them as complex people so like i have a lot of questions for god that don't have answers and that's made me lean into mystery a lot more so I'm leaning into this humanity of Jesus and I'm leaning into this mystery of God and how those two kind of coexist in this really weird tension. And it's also made me have questions about, about the afterlife. Like, what does this mean? Does this mean that, like, how is my bipolar reconciled in Christ if all things are? What does that mean? What does that mean for here and now? What does that mean for then and there? What does that mean for other people? Like living with bipolar and throwing that up against my theology has just created a lot more questions than anything else. But I think they're better questions. You know, they're not just questions of like, how do I get better? Yeah. You know, there's serious questions about like, what is God up to in the world? Serious questions about like, what does wholeness mean? If that's what we're talking about, like human flourishing, right. what does that really mean? Questions like that, that I think are a lot better questions than, you know, simply like, how does God make me better? Woohoo. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I can resonate with the having lots of questions. Um, and that, how that shapes my faith. Um, and also the way that I pray. Like, I yeah. I guess because of my, the way I grew up, I, I 
have in me somewhere still a sense that prayer can um yeah like if we pray yeah. like things can happen and yet I, I, I'm more toward this sense of like prayer being a way to center myself a way yeah. to uh a way to like like Put the intention out there of what, like, I, I wish the world to be, and then mm -hmm. what God might be calling me, in what ways God might be calling me to participate in that, right? Like, it's just not going to go, Poof. right? Like, you know, like, um, and I think while I'm not officially Episcopal, I found great comfort in the Book of Common Prayer, right? These, yeah, these prayers that have already been written, that have been prayed buy books for for longer than I've existed like and have shaped their faith uh mm -hmm. and so I I don't know that like I guess for me now when I pray if something if that I pray doesn't happen it doesn't like shake my faith or doesn't like right say like oh it must be my fault or in some really manipulative way I can think about it it's just yeah. to say things have not aligned in that way right and 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 yet i can still have a belief in god yeah yeah I, I, absolutely like i look back at some of my journals um from the time when you knew me mm -hmm. and they were desperate pleas in there to god to like like take away my sins so i can feel your presence again and all of this stuff and then learning that all of that was living with bipolar changed a lot of how i pray i'm not I'm, I'm no longer praying you know god let me feel your presence i'm praying you know god help me not be a jerk to my family while i'm going through an irritability phase with with my uh with my bipolar like it changes what i pray and how i pray because it makes me a participant in prayer like you were talking about right yeah. and it changes the focus of my prayer away from me to other people and I think, uh, you, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, ahead. sorry. Latia, one of the first interactions I had theologically, I would say, with Latia, we chronicled in uh, the first episode of being prayer bombed in a coffee shop. So uh, it's kind of a, that's what she calls it. I don't know if you're familiar with, with the description yeah. of, okay. So I'm just curious, since you live with a disability that uh, we've labeled, or you, I think you labeled invisible. Um, I'm not sure that that maybe was a regular occurrence, but when people have found out, especially in church circumstances, theological settings, whatever, um, does that, has that historically come up? Does it still come up? Is there a lot of theology wrapped up in, oh, well, you have this thing, let's pray for it so it goes away. Is that still an ongoing experience? No. It, well, it, that never was the experience in the evangelical church because a mental illness isn't going to be prayed away. It's going to be faith away. I need oh, yeah, yeah. more faith. I need to, I need to align myself with God better because remember the evangelical church teaches that emotions equate with God. Like that's how God communicates with you. That's how God does things in you. So I'm not going to be prayed for that. My brain's going to be that my neural pathways are going to be and my serotonin's gonna like they're not praying for me about that stuff. They're praying for me because I obviously am out of sync with God. And if I was in sync with God, then I wouldn't have these emotional problems. Yes. Like it, it's a complete it's a complete difference because they can't see anything to pray for, so therefore it's my fault. Sure. Because you have a secret sin you haven't asked for asked for forgiveness for, or or a sin you know you're committing, or you know what it's all rooted in you being a sinful person right? or, or I don't have enough faith. And that's why, um, if I just didn't doubt, then God would take this away from me and yeah. all of this stuff. That's, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast or not, but it makes me want to swear. That's oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> we can, we can use that, that's poo poo. Yeah, we can. <laughs> we can yeah, no, I feel yeah. it. But, but the I'm curious now as a as a you know someone that's been living with it as a, a I think I think you said something about a 
you're leaning into the mystery, but you also have a better handle on it maybe now in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, and I'm sure I'm probably putting the car before the horse and Latia is going to ask you about some of your experiences in the church, but does that ever come up in, in any sort of conversations where folks just have an impromptu desire to pray for you for your mental health uh, circumstances? No. Um, and I think it's because one of where I'm at now, like physically where I'm at, the church I'm at, they know that I live with bipolar, but they also know like it's a medical thing. So I'm okay with it. Like it's, I don't need, I don't need prayer. I don't need to be anointed with oil and holy water and all of that to get rid of it. I'm, I'm stable. So that's one reason people won't pray for me. Uh, two, I think it's also how I carry myself. I, when people find out I'm bipolar, either either they go, wow, I have a mental illness too, or they go, I never would have thought that about you, which that's its own problem. But, um, <laughs> but like, they don't, they don't want to, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they don't want to pray for me because I'm pretty self-sure in how I carry myself with my mental illness. So again, I don't think they see it as a disability. Got it. You know, that's, that's so, fascinating. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't get prayer bombed and stuff. I don't get like, let let's anoint you with oil and take you before the altar, and if you have Eucharist, then everything will heal you. And that's not the Episcopal Church for one. Yeah. And for two, like, I don't really let that happen with me. Yeah. Like, because it's invisible, people don't want to like lay hands on me and stuff because they don't see it as a disability. But even if they did, I don't really let that happen with me because I'm like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. What are you praying for? Why are you praying for that? Yeah. Are you seriously going to pray for that right now? Show me a Bible verse where, where what you're doing is biblical. Let's talk to you. <laughs> yes. like, like, seriously, get up, pull out your Bible. Let's, 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 okay, let's have a study about this. Come on, I'll teach you some disability theology. You guys can stop doing all this poo-poo. <laughs> yeah well one of the reason i ask is because it's it's not such an overt you know uh visible thing like it would be with latia right like latia has got crutches right she i mean just everything about it is so much more visible and you can tell the moment she walks in it's like oh okay um but for you it someone has to at least start to get to know you before they find out and i was just curious if that changes the dynamic of the potential for prayer bombing so it was fascinating no, I've gotten I've gotten more people coming up to me and asking if they can pray for my for my glasses to go away than anything about my like mental illness. Like, yeah, some people it's because it's the visible thing. Right. Exactly. They can see that. They're like, oh, that's that's something wrong with you. We can pray to fix that. If it's invisible, it's not really a disability because we can't see it. So it doesn't really exist like out of sight, out of mind. Hmm. Which I think, uh, like, there's pros and cons to both, right? I think yeah. that when I walk in the spaces, people don't have to question that. When you walk in the spaces, I think sometimes people, uh, well, I, I, I can extrapolate that some people might think, like, you almost have to prove yourself, like, that you have a disability, yeah. right? If, if I get into conversations on Twitter about disability theology, um, Typically, some some jerk is going to go ahead and ask me, well, like, well, what disability do you have? Because I don't have a photo showing whatever, you know, I'm looking pretty normal and I'm just talking about stuff. And I have to, like, I feel like I have to pull out the card and be like, I'm bipolar. Like, look at my identification. I belong in this conversation. Um, and that does happen sometimes because... It is invisible. It is something that people can't see just by looking at me. You, you, like if you if you if you know me for a couple months, you're gonna know that I have something going on because the rhythms and everything happens with my emotions. But just walking into a room, like if I was walking into a, a conference on disability theology, like people wouldn't know that I'm there as someone who works through disability theology because it's personal. You know, they might think that I'm just, you know, the able-bodied 
ally. <laughs> yeah, ally. <laughs> whatever you want to call him, I don't know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Shoot, I had a question and like I lost it. Um. All right, maybe it'll come back. But I'm curious to know if you, however you pick. Picture the afterlife, the new creation. Uh, like, do you have a disability? Do you have bipolar? Again, I think it depends on the disability. For me, I view what I have as a chronic illness. So I don't necessarily view like the afterlife as carrying a chronic illness into it. However, other people that that are disabled, that is part of them, like you, for example, I don't know because I, I don't want to take something away that is part of who you are and then somehow assume that you're not whole as you are because you are. Mm -hmm. But what you have isn't an illness. What you have is something else. So I don't know about these things. For me personally, I don't view an illness as going... I view my brain as being able to produce its own serotonin in the afterlife. You know what I mean? Yeah, I love it. And there's a lot of um, conversation on that. And the reality is we yeah. don't know. Uh, yeah. Whereas I would land probably in the camp. Well, not probably. I would land in the camp of like, yeah, I'll have CP in whatever the afterlife looks like. But the 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 thing like uh the pain that i have associated with like, physically i won't go with me right so but but my body and the way that it is and the way that it functions will continue to be that way um but again there's room in disability theology to say mm, no and yes and i'm not like this is not a debate about because we don't know and two like it is our own personal journeys to kind of try and make sense of something. Sometimes it's not uh, making sense of. So, yeah. I know that you are discerning being a deacon within the Episcopal Church. Yes, I remember. Mm -hmm. um, and then just uh, how do you think like your call to ministry and the process of whatever that will look like, um, your disability or your mental illness is going to be impacted by that, if, if at all. Um, well, the idea of a deacon in the Episcopal Church is an idea of somebody that serves, um, somebody that, that serves the poor, the needy, the, uh, um, the sick, and the lonely. So I really view, like, I'm going in there as, I'm going in there as someone who has an experience with these things. Mm -hmm. I'm one of the people that is sick, that is lonely. I'm one of the people that lives with these things. So it's going to help me think about not just food pantry work, but it's going to help me think about, like, other work that intersects with that stuff. Like, when you deal with homelessness, a lot of people that, that are homeless live with a mental illness that's not necessarily the reason why they're homeless but they live with this because the majority of people go through a mental health crisis at some point in their life so there are people too it's going to change how i approach them and how i think about what we're doing in serving the other thing is it's going to make me check in with my own body in ministry i'm not going to be able just to go 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 I'm going to have to stop at some point and say, how am I taking care of myself? Mm -hmm. How am I flourishing in my own life so I can help others flourish? Like those two things of like changing how I'm viewing people and changing how I'm viewing myself in ministry. Like I'm not just a tool, I'm an actual human being. So how do I take care of people and how do I take care of myself? Like those are two questions that I have to carry with me going into this process of maybe becoming a deacon. And then what like advice or what do you wish that like your, I'm not, I'm not sure what the right terms are so you can correct me here, but I know like 
Like I had to go in front of ministry boards and they asked mm -hmm. me these questions about, you know, um, anybody questions as we are discerning together, the call to ministry. Yeah. So what, what advice would you offer folks who are on those ministry boards who will encounter folks that have mental illness and are called to ministry? I would advise them to normalize mental illness, to not treat it as like its own section in the questionnaire, but to treat it as part of the help. Like you're asking about help. That's great. Include mental health in that. Mm -hmm. You don't have to treat it like, here's your body, here's your mind. Like that's really, that's a dangerous theology. That's a Gnostic like, theology, right? Exactly, yeah. yes. <laughs> and like the truth is my brain is part of my body and there are literally chemicals that my brain doesn't produce or produces too many of and that's what causes my illness. So it's part of my body. It's part of my health. Normalize it. Don't treat it as a separate thing. And in addition, don't be afraid of it. Yes, I see that hand. Hey, so so for all of us who didn't go to seminary, uh, Gnostic theology needs to be defined for a second there. This, uh, oh. Latia, <laughs> feel free to to help define that for our listeners, but also for one of the people on the show that didn't go to seminary. So Josiah doesn't know big words. We always make fun of him. That's <laughs> so. very it's very nice. So I think that evangelical church, but I think church broadly has this theology that separates. Uh, our bodies from our minds like a, a disembodied theology right um and i think that maybe one of the things that folks with disabilities offer is to say we are bodies we are human and we can't separate ourselves but uh aaron do you have some additions to that yeah so gnostic theology has been around for forever and it basically, like she said, is this dual, dual, dualism between body and mind. But it also says the body, like the physical flesh, is bad. So the further you get away from the physical flesh, more towards like the divine and the spirit, the better it is. Which is really like when we die, we all go to heaven and float around. Like that's Gnostic theology. <laughs> it's infiltrated in Christian circles a lot. And separating the body from mind only it's it's a detriment to everyone because it makes us think of ourselves not as whole creatures so we stop embodying our faith we start internalizing our faith and then we got to figure out like how do we do what's internal instead of being like no i believe with my body i am faithful to my faith you know what i mean Absolutely. That is very helpful and clarifying. Thank you for defining big words for me, Latia and Aaron as well. Which is why I'm like, when people say that term, like stand in body or in spirit, I'm like, I don't know how to do that. Right? That's, that's not like, I'm just going to stand. I'm just going to stand. <laughs> I'm going to sit, but I don't know how to do one of the other. I The other question I would have, what uh, would advice would you have for folks who feel a call to ministry and are living with bipolar knowing that a system is maybe set up that might make the journey toward ordination which yeah. is already hard more difficult yeah um i would say get a good therapist and get a good um either and i think everybody should have a therapist okay. yes everybody um <laughs> but also get a get a good nurse practitioner or a psychiatrist um because you're gonna want to know what your drugs do to you and it, a good one will explain things um and that's really important like knowing your treatment plan not just going in blindly but knowing your treatment plan because the truth is stuff can change over time. Different hormones start entering your body as you get older. It can mess with your with your medications and change things and they don't work the same. Get with somebody that can actually help take care of you as a whole person. In addition to the psychotherapy of, you know, talking through things, walking through things. Also, I would also suggest getting a good spiritual director. 
that can help you navigate the way some of this theology is going to come up in your body, how it's going to feel, where it's going to sit, what it's going to do to you. Um, you need people, you need a community. So build that community, not just family and friends, but also professionals that are actually good professionals. Like, don't be afraid to fire your therapist. Don't be afraid to fire your nurse practitioner. Like, like kick them out the door if they are not serving you well. Or talk with them. See what you can do to change it. Like, take ownership of your own well-being. That's what I would say. Yeah. That's great. Um, let's see. I think it's a good place to wrap up here, but I want to give you. Oh wait, I hear that. Although one more one more question for me, because uh, some of our listeners aren't pastors. What would you say to parishioners? What would you say to congregants? Whether whether it's a fellow parishioner congregant that is uh, maybe specifically dealing with an invisible, you know, disability, a mental health issue. Um, how to better be in community with them, but maybe even take it a step further. Do you think there's anything you wish congregates would know about um, having a pastor that has uh, a mental health condition like you do? Um, you know, bipolar. Just if you will, can of worms. Okay, <laughs> let's do this. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, parishioners, if you're gonna deal with someone that has an invisible illness, get to know them as a person. Um. Don't. Don't find out their illness and then treat them as their illness. Find out who they are. Find out what kind of food they like. And when they go into a depressive episode, take them over some Taco Bell. Like, like take care of them physically because you care about them as a whole person. Um, if you are going to love someone with an invisible illness, specifically with a mental illness, it's going to be hard. And... Like food trains, they're not just for women that have babies. Like they are for people that are sick and that need support. Because when I'm depressed, I can't even make a box of mac and cheese. Like I just want to lay on the floor and sleep or maybe lay on the floor and not shower for five days. Or like, like I need some help taking care of myself. So don't be afraid to reach out. But you have to reach out in context, so you have to get to know them before their illness really causes an episode. If you're going to deal with a pastor that has mental illness, which a lot of pastors do, be compassionate. Give them space. Give them boundaries. Give them the place where, like, you know Monday after the service, he's probably going to be wiped out. Don't call him and ask for or coffee she. or she, or sorry. She. Yes, or she, or they, let's be honest here. Okay, there we it go. Be, it could be anyone. Okay. Um, don't, don't go asking them for like coffee and critiquing their sermon. Let them have a day of rest. Let them, because they need that. Let, let, let them have time to go to their therapy. Let them have time to go to their nurse practitioner. If they're having a rough time, drive them to their therapy. Like, take care of your pastors. Give them boundaries. Be a support system for them. Don't just take, take, take. Like, that's that's just not healthy at all. And if you have somebody with a mental illness, they've only got so many spoons, man. Like, like they've only got so much energy. They've only got so much to give. Be a support and pour into them so they can pour into other people. Like, not even back into you, but into other people. Like, yeah. That spoon metaphor is, is super, super helpful. I really appreciated it, by the way. Yeah. And there's, I can't remember who originally came up with it, but we can Google. Um, yeah. But I also think that while, yes, we want to support, like, pastors with disabilities, pastors that have uh, mental illness, I think changing the culture that we have in our churches right that like all pastors need some support uh, uh, but Absolutely. it looks different so like not to like make the person with a disability or a mental illness but oh it's because we have a special pastor in quote oh yeah but like the this should be part of our culture in general 
it absolutely should be. It absolutely should be. There should be there should be no difference in how we treat the pastor, whether they have an invisible illness, uh, a, a visible disability or not. We should treat them the same with the same respect and with the same compassion. We might do different things that are specific right. to the person, but we need to give them all boundaries. We need to give them all space. We need to give them all love and support in every way we can. Um, I absolutely agree with you. Absolutely, 100%. All right. Is there anything that we haven't said that you want to be sure to say? Is there anything that you want to plug so folks can connect with you um, in other ways after they listen to this? Sure. I, uh, I'm all over the internet as Cultural Savage. Um, I have a Substack. I've got a blog. I got a Twitter. I got a Facebook. I'm all over. Um, the only other thing that I want to say I would almost suggest that people are going to be serious about this to assume everyone you encounter has a disability whether you see it or not like normalize it and tell people say that they don't have a disability and the only reason I say that is because it it, it helps us treat people as complex creatures not as like the normal and you're abnormal but it helps us just sort of normalize the whole concept that people are complex and people live with things that we don't see and if i'm treating you like you have an invisible disability and i'm treating you normally when something does come up that you need I'm going to treat you with compassion and love. Not because you have a disability, but because I care about you as a person. All right, I'm going to Just offer feedback and a little bit of pushback to that. But yeah, go, go, go ahead, go ahead, please. I would say that I don't, uh, I would be careful not to say that everybody has a disability because I understand mm -hmm. it to be a, spe a specific community with many cultures within it. But I would say... Yes. Um, to to approach people with the idea that we've all experienced some measure of trauma, like all of us. Mm. And so I have trauma whether I have a disability or not. Like those two things are not right. mutually exclusive. Like they, they don't have to, you know. So yeah, I would yeah. say that everybody has trauma. So let's be trauma-informed people as best we can, but not everybody has a disability. I like that a lot better. That that's much better what I was trying to get at. So thank you, Latia. Yeah. You're much better with words than I am right now. Thank no, you. No no worries. Uh all right. I think we're good. The Millennial Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. This season's guest host is Latia Frazier. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please be sure to rate, review, or subscribe, and visit themillennialpastor.com for more podcasts like it.